Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, well, welcome everyone to Home Run Faith Week 4. Uh, this is our fun baseball-themed summer series uh, here at Liquid. It's so good to be here in Morristown. My name is Richard, and I'm the campus pastor in Mountainside. So let's give a good old baseball cheer to our other campuses, New Brunswick, Nutley, and Mountainside. Now, I, I need to start off today with just reading a little bit of Scripture from Psalm 34. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Guys, and this is why I'm a Mets fan. Because I want to be near to the Lord. Uh, if this doesn't prove that God is rooting for the Mets and not the Yankees, then, you know, I mean, the Bible says the first will be last, and the last will be first one day. One day, we can hope. Um, but seriously, I've been a baseball fan for so long, uh, ever since right around 1986, and, uh, you know, I mean, I've watched baseball, I follow baseball. Even when I was young, I played baseball. Uh, baseball's been so, so much fun for me. Um, and, you know, honestly, when they said we're going to do a baseball-themed series, I said, put me in because I'm ready to play. Uh, we've been looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, as really a foundational verse for the whole series. And it's been a really a look at, uh, for us about how Paul is talking to his protege, Timothy, about as Timothy's starting out in the ministry. So Paul is our Hall of Fame power hitter, and he says to Timothy, Timothy, these are the things that you, as a rookie, are going to need to learn so that you can get a home run faith. And so let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Power, love, and self-discipline. So for those of you who are taking notes, it's right there in your notes, so go ahead and fill out those blanks. Now, we've been using a picture of a baseball diamond for us to be able to understand and illustrate what Paul is talking about. So Paul says that the spirit that God gave us does not give us a spirit of fear. So there is no fear, no reason to fear when we have God's presence. But he's given us a spirit of power, which is God making, being powerful in our weaknesses, a, a spirit of love, self-sacrifice for other people. And today, we look at this idea of self-discipline, self-discipline. Now, in some translations, it's this idea of self-control, self-control or self-discipline. Now, we need to understand that because any big league pitcher in the majors in baseball is, is going to need to have discipline or control to be able to succeed and to stay in what we're calling today the strike zone. Now, the strike zone, for those of you who aren't baseball fans, is the area above home plate from the knees to the chest where if the ball gets pitched into that area, it's called a strike. And if it's outside of that area, it's called a ball. And so the pitcher's goal is to throw that ball in a location and with a velocity that makes it difficult for me to hit as the batter. And so really, it's that same idea here that you see when you watch baseball on television, you'll see that they put this little box here to show where the pitch ends up. And so you can see that it's in this box 
And so we see from this random clip of this random batter, I don't know uh, who that is, you can see that he struck out because the pitch was so clearly in the strike zone and Jeter's gone again. Uh, God is a Mets fan, like I said. Uh, But the pitcher wants to throw the ball into the strike zone. Now, what happens when the pitcher has the velocity and can throw the ball really hard, but he doesn't have control? He doesn't have discipline over where he's throwing the ball. Well, we call that pitcher a wild pitcher. And sometimes when the the pitch is so bad that it actually gets past the catcher all the way to the backstop, we call that a wild pitch. Now, a pitcher without discipline and without control is never going to last very long in the major leagues. An all-star pitcher is one with control and discipline about how to pitch the ball. And you know what? It's no different for us in the faith. Paul says you need to have discipline. You need to have control in your spiritual lives so that you can stay in the strike zone. We need to have that discipline that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. So today we're going to look at one of the early disciples who's a Hall of Famer. His name is the Apostle Peter. And he's really an all-star who learned really this idea of pitching with discipline. But Peter, early in his career, he lost control and actually he threw a lot of wild pitches. But eventually he was able to settle down and develop that discipline in his life and stay in the strike zone. So our ushers are coming forward now, and they're actually releasing for us the fourth and final card of our Liquid Limited series baseball cards, Uh, and today we're looking at the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter is, you see on the back of the card, his name actually means the rock, the rock, and he was the foundation, he was the founder of the church in Rome. And you see under strengths on the back of the card there, it says walked on water. He walked on water. The story of Peter walking on water is so interesting because we get to see two sides of Peter. We get to see the Peter who fires fastballs, but then we also get to see the Peter that throws some wild pitches, you see, and missed the strike zone. You see, Peter started following Jesus. He started walking with him. He was one of the original 12 disciples. But if you think that just because you start following Jesus that your life is going to be all smooth sailing, I don't think that's always the case. I mean, has that been your experience that, that as soon as you followed Christ, that the, rose, the, the road rose up to meet you, that everything was all smooth sailing? No, it hasn't been my experience, and it's certainly not Peter's experience. In fact, if there was anyone in the Bible that consistently would miss the strike zone, it was Peter. Someone who would rear back and just throw the ball and not know where it's going to go and have no control, it would be Peter. You see, Peter was full of passion for Jesus, but he's also a reminder that passion without self-discipline is a recipe for failure. Peter's story of walking on water is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. Jesus is teaching and then he sends the disciples across the lake in a boat. So they're rowing across this lake in the middle of the night. And Jesus finishes praying, and he wants to catch up to the disciples. So he doesn't have a boat, so he's Jesus, so he walks on the water. So he starts walking on the water to catch up to the disciples. Now, the disciples are rowing in the middle of a lake in the middle of the night, and they see a figure on the water. So naturally, they freak out, and they go, it's a ghost! 
And so we're going to pick up the story right at that moment in Matthew 14, verses 27 through 31. It's page 685 in your Bible, 685 in your Bible. So go ahead and turn there as we look at Matthew 14, verse four, uh, 27 through 31. The disciples scream, it's a ghost. And then Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't freak out, guys, it's just me, Jesus. Now, for most of the disciples, that was probably okay, as okay as you would be with a person walking on water in the middle of the night, but that wasn't okay for Peter. You see, Peter likes to fire fastballs, right? And so he goes, he, he says, look, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, and what does he do? It says, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it, right? Not only do we have Jesus walking on the water, but now we have Peter walking on the water as well. Peter had reared back, and he had fired this triple-digit, tailing motion, painting the black on the inside corner type of pitch. Peter had thrown this unhittable pitch. He's walking on water. Have you guys ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you're your spiritual life is just soaring, just taking off. Maybe you're one of the hundred people that got baptized last spring. Or maybe you're one of the people that ran the Water Warrior 5K that we just had, that you crossed the finish line with exhilaration, not because you had finished, but because you knew that what you were doing right here was fighting dirty water in the remote regions of the world. Or maybe you found yourself worshiping God at our more worship night that we just had, that you felt God's presence upon you. Maybe in your spiritual life, you've had one of those moments where everything was just soaring. That's where Peter was when he's walking on the water. But look at what happens next. It says, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, what? Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Have you guys ever felt like that? Where everything is just going smoothly and then bam, it just comes crashing down. I mean, where you just lose control and you lose discipline in your life. That, you know, you're walking along, everything's going smoothly, and then you start stumbling, and all of a sudden, you get that feeling like you're beginning to sink spiritually. Maybe you got a stack of bills in the mail, and you feel like you're sinking. Or maybe you got that phone call from the doctor, and you feel like you're sinking. Or maybe you lose a relationship, or lose a loved one, and you start to feel like you're sinking. Certainly, we've been there in our spiritual lives. You see, Peter is walking on water, and he starts losing control. He becomes undisciplined, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He sees the wind, and he starts worrying, and he starts to sink. Peter had reared back, and he threw this unhittable pitch, and it just got smoked back up the middle, and it knocked his hat off. Peter had experienced this amazing success and then he suffered catastrophic failure. Have you ever experienced a catastrophic failure in your life? Do you know what that's like? My wife, Teresa, and I, uh, we know what it's like to suffer through failure. We started dating when we were in our mid-20s. 
Uh, and everything was so fun and exciting. Maybe you remember what that's like. And, you know, after we got married, we had to learn how to share everything, right? We had to learn how to share food, share a closet, and, yes, even share a bed. But the one thing that caused us the most pain in our first year of marriage was learning how to share our finances. You see, as single people, before we even knew each other, we each made decisions in our spiritual lives, I mean, our financial lives, that really plunged us deep into debt as a married couple. We had certainly missed throwing at the strike zone. We made poor decisions on buying things that we didn't need and couldn't afford. We didn't manage our money very well. But the real thing was that when Teresa was faced with the tuition of her last year in nursing school, financial aid did not come in. And so she's faced with losing all of the studies that she's had up to that point, and she's at the cusp of starting her career as a nurse, and all of that coming to an end. So when financial aid wasn't available, she decided to put her tuition on her credit card. Now you're sitting there going, I didn't even know you could do that. Just wait till the end of the story and before you make any decisions. But fast forward a few more years to our first year in marriage. Now, Teresa had graduated from nursing school, and now she's working every weekend in the night shift as a labor, labor and delivery nurse um, in the overnight shift in a hospital. Meanwhile, spending her weekdays, she's going to school full-time for her master's degree to become a nurse practitioner. Meanwhile, I'm working as a college pastor and worship leader at our church. And, you know, no matter how hard we work, no matter what we could do, we couldn't pay down our debt. We would fire pitches, and it would just be wild pitch after wild pitch after wild pitch. You know, to be honest, it wasn't just that we couldn't pay down our debt. We couldn't even afford the minimum payments on all of our bills. We were young, and we had lost control. Now, I know that not everyone can relate to this, but is there anyone out there in liquid land who has missed a payment or two? Can I hear a mm-hmm? Okay, all right, all right. So I'm not alone. I, I appreciate that. You know, Teresa and I had found ourselves sinking financially, and we needed help. So in the first year of our marriage, the first year, we walked into a lawyer's office, and we heard him say the words, you are bankrupt. And so we filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Here we are as newlyweds, right? We're walking on water, and everything's going great, and then we're walking into bankruptcy court. We're holding hands, and we're looking at each other, and we're saying, I do, and then we're holding hands and looking at each other and saying, we failed. It was this moment that we recognized that we didn't have the discipline or control in our lives over our finances. Now, some of you are sitting here maybe feeling that same sort of pain that I and Teresa were feeling. You've lost control of your finances and you feel like you're sinking. You've failed. Just a few weeks ago, I was having breakfast with a friend in Mountainside. And he was telling me the story of how his friends had abandoned him, the job he had was he was let go of, and he had no place to live and no place to work. He certainly had experienced some failures. But one of the things I shared with him was about the story about the Apostle Peter. You see, one of the great things about this story of the Apostle Peter is that when Peter is sinking, it says it, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he caught him. Now, you have to understand this, right? 
If Peter was within arm's reach of Jesus when he's starting to sink, what would you do? You would reach out and you would grab Jesus. But he doesn't do that, which means that for Peter, Jesus was far off. But isn't it something that when we feel like God is far off, Jesus is still right there to be able to catch us? I know Teresa and I felt like Jesus was far off, but he was able to just catch us, and he was right there all along for us. Now, what do you think Peter did, right? When he gets back in the boat, he's all soaking wet, and then they get to the shore. Do you think he's just like, you know what, hanging up his cleats? He's like, you know what, I had it. I can't do it. I can't make it. I retire. No, that's not what Peter does. Sure, Peter had failed. He couldn't throw strikes, but Peter didn't give up. He didn't give up his faith on God or in himself. Peter had thrown a wild pitch, but he picked up the ball again and got back up on the mound. After Teresa and I had declared bankruptcy, we were embarrassed. I mean, we couldn't go out to eat. We couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't go hang out with friends or go shopping as much as often as we'd like. We would have to check the bank account to see if we had enough money to be able to afford gas. Every time we paid for something, we were reminded that we had failed. We'd sunk down into the water and we couldn't rescue ourselves. And in the darkest moment of our failure and an embarrassment, we cried out to the Lord for help, Lord, save me. And though he felt far off, Jesus reached out his hand and he caught us, and he lifted us up, and he gave us another chance. Now, we could have let that failure and embarrassment define us. It could have been where we just continued to spend frivolously, and we just continued to make poor choices, but rather, we didn't let that failure fester in our relationship, or we didn't let that bickering or blame drive a wedge between us, but rather, we knew God had given us another chance. We knew that God was giving us an opportunity to do things right, and so we committed that we're going to honor God with our finances, and so we started tithing more faithfully, we lived more frugally, and we trusted more fervently. We had failed, we had lost control, but God gave us the ball again, and he said, let's go again. You can do this. Now, over the years that followed after that, we started to rebuild our financial lives, this time with self-discipline. And you know what? God blessed us. And so soon enough, we qualified for a credit card again, and then after that, we were able to lease a car on our own. And just three years after filing for bankruptcy... We were able to get our finances in order enough to qualify for a mortgage to purchase our first home. God's faithfulness and his forgiveness for us was present because we didn't let our past define us. We were able to move past our past through God's faithfulness. So the first question I want to answer for us today is what do you do when you've lost control and you've, you've missed the strike zone? What do you need to do to stay in the strike zone? So the first question is, what do we need to do? The answer is you need to move past your past. Move past your past. That's what we need to do to stay in the strike zone. If you're taking notes, it's right there in your notes. How many of you here today 
have suffered some sort of failure, and you find it hard to move past your past. You've hit some hard times. You've missed the strike zone. You feel like you're sinking into the water. You need to move past your past. We have to understand that God has given us a a spirit to help us through this process, to give us no fear, power, love, and the discipline to be able to take the ball again. You can't just leave the ball on the mound and walk up. We need to pick up the ball again and hear God say, you can do this. Let's go again. Peter didn't leave the disciples. He didn't stop following Jesus. In fact, he actually continued to walk with Jesus and serve his people. He moved past his past. He didn't let those past failures define him. So much so that when the early church was forming, who is it that we see standing on the mound, front and center? Peter. Peter is the one firing fastballs right in the spotlight in the prime time. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon recorded in the early church, and guess how many people? 3,000 people were saved. In Acts 3, he's the one who went up to the man at the temple gate and he healed him of his sickness. And in Acts chapter 4 and 5, he gets arrested twice and beaten, but he refused to give in to the leaders and he did not stop preaching about Jesus. Three times, Peter had reared back and thrown three perfect strikes. When Peter lost control and he missed the strike zone, He didn't let that define him. Don't let your failures define you. Move past your past by recognizing that we can stay in the game and get on the mound again. Through God's forgiveness and through his faithfulness, Peter was able to throw strikes again with self-discipline and with control. Now, whatever failures you have in your life, whatever pain you're suffering through, don't let your past define you. Don't let those failures define you. God is saying, stay in the game. I don't define you by your failures, and neither should you. Let's move past your past. Guys, Teresa and I didn't let our failures define us. We failed, but we moved past our bankruptcy. We didn't let our credit score define us. Don't be defined by your loneliness. Don't be defined by your diagnosis. Don't be defined by your failures. God says, move past your past. God is saying, don't give up on me because I have not given up on you. As it says in Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, let's read this together. It says, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And then it says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. God is saying, I will be with you. Don't give up on me. Stay in the game, move past your past, and don't let these things define you. There's no reason to fear because the spirit that God has given us is present with us with power and with love and self-discipline. And because of this spirit, we're able to round the bases. What we need to do is move past our past. Now, you'll notice on the back of your card that it doesn't just say walking on water, but under weaknesses, there's another part of Peter's life that we see here where it says denied Jesus three times. Now, towards the end of his life, Jesus actually predicts that Peter is going to deny Jesus. You're going to deny me three times. Take a look at what it says in Matthew 26. It says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will disown me 
three times. Peter, you're going to throw three wild pitches. And you know what? That's exactly what happens. Peter finds himself in the courtyard, and he does deny Christ three times. He says, I don't know who you're talking about. And then on the verse that's on the back of your card, in verse 75, it says this. Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he wept bitterly. Peter failed. He denied Jesus. He had been given three chances, and he threw three wild pitches. Guys, remember that this is the guy who will be standing on the mound in just a few days in the beginning of Acts, ready to throw fastballs, these three perfect strikes. How does someone go from denying Jesus three times to starting the early church? How does someone like that, in Jesus' darkest hour, abandoning him, how does he go and start the church in Rome? How does someone like that move past their past? Well, to best understand this, we need to actually look at another disciple who denied and betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot was one of the original 12 disciples, just like Peter. And just like Peter, he denied Jesus and he betrayed him. In Judas's case, he actually sold Christ to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver so that they could capture him and they could crucify him. But after the soldiers take Jesus away, Judas begins to feel so much remorse and angst and sorrow over betraying Jesus. So right after Peter's denial, Matthew writes about Judas. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. Here you have Judas who denies Christ and he ends up taking his own life. He was left hopeless and with nowhere else to turn. He could not get past his past because he kept identifying and defining himself with his failures. Studying about Judas actually reminds me about a story of one of my favorite athletes. His name is R.A. Dickey and he's a major league pitcher. Uh, what makes R.A. Dickey unique is that he throws a knuckleball. And a knuckleball is a pitch with no spin on it. You can see here, it's got no spin. And the better the knuckleball is, the less spin it will have. R.A. Dickey's rise to success in the major leagues has actually been one wrought with failures and pain. Dickey was a three-time All-American at the University of Tennessee, and he got drafted in the first round by the Texas Rangers, only to have that contract rescinded because doctors realized that he did not have a ligament in his pitching elbow. And so Dickey's confidence was gone, and so it seemed was his talent. He middled around in the minor leagues for about 10 years before he remade himself as a knuckleballer. And he was 10 years after he got drafted that he finally made the major leagues as a knuckleballer in 2006. And he made his first start, and he gave up six home runs, the most in Major League history, and he was cut from the team. He had risen above his failures, and he had failed again. And at that moment, Dickey felt that sinking feeling. You see, Ari Dick is a Christian, and so he knew what he needed to do. He needed to get past his past, but he didn't know how to do it. 
He needed to not let his failures define him, but he didn't know how he could do that. And at that moment of failure, R.A. Dickey wanted to end it all. I was just at the end of myself. In my darkest moment, I was sitting in a, a driveway with a rubber hose duct taped to the exhaust pipe and run into the driver's side window with the window rolled up and a towel packed around the slit that that window created um, with my hand on the key. The only thing that saved me in that moment was that feeling that, that God was sitting right beside me in the passenger seat and whispering to me all the while, do not turn that key, I've got something else for you. And so I didn't. And I survived. I survived that when I had totally surrendered myself to the end. The knuckleball can be a metaphor for what it's like to, to let go. When you throw a knuckleball, well, the only thing that you care about is releasing the ball towards its target without spin. And to release a ball that doesn't spin, you have to surrender to the outcome in a way that you don't with other pitches. For me personally, God's in my mechanic too. He's in the process. So the surrender for me doesn't happen when I release the pitch. It happens when I wake up in the morning. Having to surrender to every moment from then until I close my eyes again at night. I think the complete surrender is what, what I'm most infatuated by. My name is Ari Dickey and I am second. R.A. knew what he needed to do to stay in the strike zone, that he needed to move past his past, but he didn't understand how to do it until he learned surrender to Christ. He learned that what mattered most in life was not what he did on a baseball diamond, but what he did for Christ. But the amazing thing is actually He's gone on to do some pretty amazing things on a baseball diamond. In 2012, he actually won the Cy Young Award, which is the most outstanding pitching award. And uh, it was the first in history to ever do it as a knuckleballer. And he did it for the God's favorite team, New York Mets. Um, but, you know, the amazing thing is that recognizing that he knew what he needed to do, but he didn't know how to do it until he learned that it was Christ who made the difference. So the second question that I want to answer for us today, we know what we have to do. We have to move past our past. But now we need to answer the question of how do we do it? How do we do it? And the answer is know who wins. Know who wins. Guys, the difference of how we can move past our past and not let our failures define us is if we know who Jesus is. Peter and Judas both denied Christ. Both of them saw him get arrested and sentenced. How does one of them find hope again to be able to start over and find himself planning the early church? And how does the other one lose all hope and end up taking himself out of the game for good? 
The difference is found in Matthew 16. Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the what? Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah just means savior. Peter knew that Jesus was the savior. He knew that Jesus was wins. And because of that, even when Peter failed, even when he had abandoned Jesus at the most crucial moment of his life, Peter was able to stay in the game and start the early church. Why? Because he knew who wins. That's what Judas didn't know and what he didn't understand. And ultimately, that's why Judas couldn't get over his sorrow and he couldn't move past his past. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 7. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation or to life and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, guys, there is a sorrow that will lead to your salvation and ultimately to life. But there's another sorrow that only leads to death. So what's the difference? I mean, what is the difference between Peter and Judas, between life and and death. It's knowing who wins. It's knowing that God is our Savior. Guys, all that we do here, this is not a matter of just what you want to fill your Sunday morning with. This is not just a matter of hearing a good message that uplifts our soul or we singing our favorite song. That's not what this is about. What we do here is a matter of life and death. So we know what we need to do. we got to move past our past. We can't let our failures define us anymore. But now we know how to do it. We need to remember who wins. You know the best part about knowing who wins is if I'm going to pop in the commemorative DVD of the 1986 Mets World Series Championship because um, I actually do own it, Um, But if I'm going to pop in that DVD, right, and I'm going to watch this game, and the Red Sox are beating the Mets three games to two, and the Mets are down to their last batter with their last strike, am I worried? No. When the Mets make an error or they give up a run or they fall behind, am I scared that at any moment the the World Series is going to be won by the Red Sox? No, because I know who wins. I know how the game ends. I know the story. When you watch something on your DVR and you already have heard about the ending, when you watch it, there's no more drama left in the process because you know the end. You know how the story goes. And so listen, when you're watching something and you, your team is losing, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid because you know who wins. Spiritually, We know who wins. We know how the story ends. And so we don't have to be afraid because we know that our story ends in life and not in death. And so we know that every time we fail, every time we sink, every time we sin, we can move past those things because we know Christ wins. We know that Christ has victory over our failures and our sins. And no matter what we do in our lives, we know the story ends in life and not in death. In just a moment, we're going to call you forward to do uh, some communion. And you know, if there's anything in church that we do 
that celebrates Christ's victory, it's communion. If there's anything that we do that reminds us of who wins the game, it's communion. Because we're saying that Christ has broken his body and he has shed his blood to give you life. Christ has given his life in death so that we can have life. We can have this victory. And so as we take of the wafer and the juice, it's a reminder of Christ's victory for us. So guys, we know we have to move past our past. We need to stay disciplined, to stay in that strike zone. We need to move past our past. And now we know how to do it. We need to remember who wins. And so as we're taking communion, what we're saying is we're saying, God, we know you win. And we know that in Christ, we win. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you for your victory that we have in Christ. We thank you, God, that, that no failure in our life, that no amount of sin, no amount of sinking in our spiritual lives will ever be able to make you not save us, God. We know that we will be saved because, God, you are so close to us to grab us even though you feel far off. God, we know that we have salvation in Christ. So, God, there are people in this room right now that need to move past their past, that need to stop letting their past failures define them. There are people in this room that need to celebrate in Christ's victory in their life to remind themselves of the victory. And God, so we look at someone like Peter who threw a bunch of wild pitches, God, but ultimately was used so mightily by you. God, thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.